I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11. I want to sort of step back once again and look at these verses we've looked at already, not to beat them into the ground or, or to uh, uh, do anything like that, but my goal here this morning is to make sure that you understand the vital importance of prayer in your life as a believer. This is the last Sunday uh, before the start of the new year for 2016, and we all seem to have some great ambitions uh, for the start of the year. We love new beginnings. We are new beginnings ourselves in Christ. And so we love to start things new and make New Year's resolutions about eating right or maybe losing weight or exercising more or maybe just using the internet less or reading more, whatever it might be. But how many of us here today have ever considered or have had the thought come across our mind as a New Year's resolution that I should pray more? I'm going to resolve to seek the Lord in private prayer more. I'm sure that most of us in this room could probably admit to eating too much throughout the year or the fact that we've gained too much weight or the fact that we don't exercise enough, or that we just don't take the time to read enough because we watch too much TV or waste our time on the internet. But how many of us here in this room can say that I already pray enough? Truth be told, for all of us, right up there to next to reading the scriptures, this is probably the single most neglected discipline of our Christian lives. And I'm not just talking about saying a prayer when you fall asleep. I'm not just talking about saying a prayer at mealtime. But how many of us actually take time out of our day and we set it aside specifically for the purpose of private prayer? Some have remarked that uh, praying is to the soul what breathing is to the body. And if that be true, how many of us in this room here today are holding our spiritual breath? If reading the scriptures is like inhaling and prayer is like exhaling, how many of us in this room are even breathing? And so my goal here for you this morning, and for myself as well as I studied this, is to consider the vital importance of prayer in your Christian walk. And we end 2015, as we do this, I could find no better subject to preach about than prayer, because it seemed like the Lord just seemed to providentially have books on prayer show up at my doorstep over this last week. But as we've looked over these verses in detail over the last couple weeks, I want to sort of pull back, if you will, and show you why it is that you should pray. Because that's what verses 1 through 13 are here to teach us about. Why should you take time to be alone with God through prayer? How do you do it? What sort of things should you ask for? How regularly should I ask for them? These are questions that these verses answer, and I don't want us to miss it as a church. So I want to read these verses once again in chapter 11, if you will with me. Verses 1 through 13 of Luke chapter 11. And I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. God's Holy Word says this, And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. 
And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we, all, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and your tender mercies. We thank you how it's rich in instruction for our lives. And as we hear this today, Lord, help us to not only just be a hearer of the word, but help us to be a doer of the word. Help us to be a people devoted to prayer. We thank you for your word, Lord. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was on this day, on December 27th, in 1742, some 273 years ago, that the famed American Indian missionary by the name of David Brainerd wrote an entry into his journal chronicling his time spent in prayer to the Lord. This journal, by the way, would later be edited and then published by his would-have-been father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards. But listen to what he wrote on this very day about his time in prayer and communion with the Lord. He said, quote, I have had a sweet melting sense of divine things, of the pure spirituality of the religion of Christ Jesus. Oh, the sweetness the tenderness I felt in my soul. If ever I felt the temper of Christ, I had some sense of it now. Blessed be my God. I have seldom enjoyed a more comfortable comfortable and profitable day than this. Oh, that I could spend all my time for God. End quote. Well, that very prayer would get answered sooner rather than later because at the early age of 29... David Brainerd would meet his Lord by dying of tuberculosis. David Brainerd was a man who was devoted to prayer, so much so that he would routinely set aside his few birthdays here on this earth for a time of fasting and prayer. But rarely do we find men and women today who pray with such diligence and fervency. In fact, I would argue to say that there are probably many even in the church today that rarely pray, if at all. 
Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote in his books, A Call to Prayer. Many of you have grabbed this from the uh, foyer there. It is a treasure for you to read. Listen to what he said from the 1800s. He said, quote, I believe that hundreds of thousands never utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go forth to their labor, they return to their homes, they breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies, they have dying bodies, they have judgment and eternity set out before them, but they never speak to God. They live like beasts who perish. They behave like creatures without souls. They have not one word to say to him in whose hand are the life and breath and all things and from whose mouth that they must one day receive the everlasting sentence. How how dreadful this seems. But if the secrets of men were only known, how common. Does this describe you this morning? Are you trying to lead a prayerless life? What is it that seems to hinder you from devoting yourself to prayer? Maybe you say to yourself, you know, I just don't have time. Maybe it's because you feel unworthy. Maybe it's because you don't feel like you want to reveal too much to God about your heart. Maybe it's because you don't believe that God will actually hear the prayer or your prayer because you don't see answers coming as quickly as you want and on your timetable. Maybe it's because you're afraid that you might actually have to change something about yourself. Can I tell you that those are all bad excuses? Do we not cast so much doubt on the character of God when we don't avail ourselves to prayer? Do we not think little of God's strength? And, and don't we cast, when we don't cast our burdens upon Him, and yet we try to deal with it on our own? Do we not regard His power as little and small when we don't seek His divine assistance? Do we not think lightly of His wisdom when we don't ask for it through prayer? Listen, our God is in the business of taking seemingly difficult situations with very little resources, and he turns them out for our good and for his glory. And prayer brings about those things that seem to appear too hard for us to bear or too difficult to accomplish or impossible for us to overcome. Because when we pray, we are seeking the one source upon which everything else derives its existence. God created everything ex nihilo. And that literally means that he created it out of nothing. He took things that we see and he created them out of things which we can't see. And beloved, you and I have access to this same God who rules and reigns over every aspect of his creation through Jesus Christ and by the strength of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Scripture attests to this again and again and again. It was prayer that opened up the wombs of Abimelech's house by Abraham in Genesis 20, 17. It was prayer that opened up Rebekah's womb because of Isaac's prayer in Genesis 25, 21. It was prayer that made the waters of Marah from bitter to sweet for the Israelites to drink in Exodus 15. It was prayer that brought down fire from heaven that consumed Elijah's altar over the prophets of Baal and thus proving that there was indeed a God in Israel. 
It was the prayers of Hezekiah and Isaiah when the Assyrian army surrounded Judah, ready to take it captive. And they prayed, and an angel of the Lord came and destroyed the army of the Assyrians and sent Sennacherib back to Assyria in defeat. Prayer has raised the dead back to life. It has moved the hearts of kings. It has shut up the sky from rain and brought it back again. And yet, even though we have this consistent testimony of Scripture as to the power of God through prayer, why is it that we seldom so practice it? Why is it that we neglect it? We have such a key to heaven in our hands, and we seldom use it to unlock it. We have such an opportunity laid out before us through prayer. The disciples recognize this opportunity. And that's why when they saw Jesus praying in verse 1, they asked him, how is it that they should pray? Now notice, they didn't ask him, how should I walk on water? They didn't ask him, how do I raise somebody from the dead? They didn't ask him, how do I cast out demons? They asked him, how should they pray? Now, could it be that when they saw Jesus praying, that they were seeing and hearing someone that was unlike anything that they had ever seen or heard before? Could it be that they were actually witnessing someone who communed with God through prayer in such a way that it made them realize that this guy, he actually knows God? You know, when you look at Jesus performing his miracles in Scripture, you never see where it makes his brow sweat. You never see it make him weary or, or that he had to exert some sort of extra effort to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. But it is only when we find Jesus Christ praying that we find him agonizing and toiling to such an extent that he would sweat drops of blood such as he did in Luke 22. Some fervent prayer sessions for Jesus lasted so long and were so intense that even the disciples couldn't keep awake. But as they listened and they watched him pray, this is what they wanted to learn about because they could hear that Jesus actually knew God. So the question comes to you. When people hear you pray, do they hear someone who knows God? Can they tell that you are someone that is intimately acquainted with the throne of grace? Fathers, mothers, When you lead your family in prayer at the dinner table, do your children hear someone who knows God? If the answer is no, or if you have any doubts, then the only solution for you is to start and get alone with God. You won't even be able to lead your family in prayer or a church in prayer if you're not doing so in private. Thomas Brooks said that secret prayer prepares and fits the soul for family prayer and for public prayer. It has to begin with you and with God. And so when the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, he obliges them and he gives them a road map in verses 2 through 4. And we can break this down in a lot of different ways, but for the sake of simplicity, it's broken down into a concern for God's glory and concerns for our need. So first of all, notice how it begins with God. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And Jesus teaches his disciples that their first and primary concern should be the greater glory of God. You might say it in another way, that Jesus is teaching them that they are to honor 
uh, or teach the honor of God or the fame of God or magnify God's great name should be the primary approach of those who come to God in prayer. Many of the Old Testament saints understood this well before Jesus taught his disciples. Listen to the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 17. He said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God. The Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, you have made a name for yourself as it is this day. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And it should be noted that this is just the beginning of Jeremiah's prayer while he is in prison. He didn't bemoan his circumstances. He didn't begin by saying, God, you got to get me out of this place. He wasn't fixated on his present circumstances, but his concern in prayer was the greater glory and the character of God. Nehemiah, after learning that the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down and the city gates burned with fire, he began by praying, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Jonah, even Jonah, instead of demanding, God, get me out of the belly of this great fish, He extolled the character of God by saying, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And so what Jesus was teaching his disciples was basically, let's get our priorities straight. Recognize to whom you are talking when you come to God in prayer. God is not your cosmic vending machine that you can just make whatever demands you want of Him. He isn't your genie in a bottle. Your prayer should be focused first and foremost on extolling who God is, submitting to what God wants, seeking how God can be most glorified in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. The second thing that we see is that after we focus our attention on our Heavenly Father, we are then to pray for our own needs in this world from verses 3 through 4. And it's not as if God gets set aside here, but He is exalted here nonetheless. Because when we pray about these basic but essential things, we are acknowledging as God as the source of our needs, from bread to forgiveness to deliverance from future temptations. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this of these three petitions. Clearly, the first thing that is necessary is that we must be able to continue our existence in this world. We are alive and must be kept alive. The very fact of my existence and being are involved. And so the first petition deals with the needs of our physical frame. That's the bread, right? And our Lord starts with that. He then goes on to deal with the needs of cleansing from defilement and guilt of sin. 
And lastly, with the need for being kept from sin and its power. That is the true way to look at man's life. I'm alive, I must be kept alive, but then I am conscious of guilt and unworthiness, and I feel the need to be cleansed from that. You know, it's pretty easy to get caught up in complacency in this world that we, we don't usually have to worry about our next meal, right? Especially in America. We have, it seems like, an abundance of anything we want at any time. And we're very presumptive about the grace and the kindness that God extends to us because we ha- tend to have an abundance of food and supplies and it seems like life just keeps carrying on. We seem to always forget that it is God who is the one who gives us our unique talents and our giftings and everything that we need to be able to do the jobs we do. But how often do we give thanks to God for the life and the breath and the health and the talents and the mercy that have all come from Him? Because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. And then when is the last time that you got alone and confessed your sin to God? When was the last time you took your weakness and your ailments of sin to the great physician? Listen to what Thomas Brooks once said. He said, Oh friends, who can reckon up the secret sinful imaginations, the secret sinful inclinations, or the secret pride, or the secret blasphemies, or the secret hypocrisies, the secret atheistical risings, the secret murmurings, the secret repinings, the secret discontentments, the secret insolies, the secret filthiness, the secret unbelievings that God might every day charge upon his soul. The secret diseases of our souls are not to be laid open to everyone, but only to the physician of souls who alone is able not only to cure them, but to pardon them. How all these things call upon every Christian to be frequent and constant in secret prayer. When you confess your sins to God, you are basically agreeing God what he has said about it, whatever it is. It's evil, it's wicked, and it has no part with him. And if you want to experience one of the surest antidotes to your hard heart and your joyless life, then confession of sin is the surest way of restoring an intimate fellowship with God. Proverbs 28, 13 says that he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. What sin have you been harboring in your heart and have been carrying around for far, far too long? What is it that you've been carrying around that you need to unload onto the shoulders of God? Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's coveting. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's anger, malice, hatred, deceit. Maybe it's all of the above. Whatever it is, 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then after Jesus gives the disciples the pattern for prayer in verses 1 through 4, he instructs them about how they should be persistent in prayer in verses 5 through 8 by telling them a parable. And the parable is the story of a friend who comes over and knocks on the door at night. And the guy is in the house and he's sort of reluctant to get up because he doesn't want to wake up all of his kids that are asleep. But the point of the parable is this. In relation to pray is, excuse me, 
The point of the parable is this, in verse 8, when he says, I tell you that even though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The point is this, that our prayers are not always answered on our timetable. Our prayers are not always answered as fast as we would want them to be. But for reasons that are unknown and unexplained to us, God will answer, but it will be in his perfect timing, and it will be in his perfect ways. On November 8th, 1972, there was a young couple that had a a daughter that was born to them. And this couple was praying. They were a praying couple. And they knew they should be praying for their daughter's husband that she might marry someday. That God would provide a man that would lead her, that would compliment her. That man who would know the Lord. And so all throughout her life, they would pray to God and ask them, please send a godly man for my daughter. But by the time their daughter became a teenager, she started running around with the wrong crowd. And she ended up finding a young man that was an atheist of all things. And worst of all, she became pregnant and she was unmarried. So here is their joy. Here is their treasure. Their young daughter that they had dedicated to the Lord and they had prayed and prayed and prayed for is now 19 years old. And she's pregnant and she's unmarried. How could this be? How could God let them down this way? They were missionaries. They were servants of the church. The husband even preached a couple times. How could God do this? Well, they continued to pray, more so than ever. And so that daughter ended up marrying the atheist and, and having her baby with him. And then the daughter repented and started praying for her atheist husband as well. And so year after year, she kept pleading with God that he might save him. It was a bad situation to be in, but all of them kept continuing in prayer. Until eventually one day, after a couple years of getting married to this young atheist, he eventually bowed the knee to King Jesus. And it wasn't always beautiful in those beginning years by any means. But nonetheless... God kept on working and working in that man's heart. God saved him. And God began to work in his life. Until eventually one day, that young atheist, who was now a Christian for a number of years, began to sense the call to plant a church. And God orchestrated everything necessary for that to occur by divine provisions. And eventually that young atheist who became a Christian would become a pastor. And that pastor is whom you hear speaking for in front of you this very day. I got a Christmas card from my father-in-law memorializing those very events this year. And it said, Matt, my special memories of you has to be when I first met you in our one-bedroom apartment in Rosedale and not killing you. <laughs> I know, if that doesn't get you all misty-eyed, nothing will. 
And number two, the great joy in seeing where you came from and where you are now. Continue to serve the Savior. Do you think for a moment back in the 70s and the 80s that it ever crossed the mind of my in-laws that God would answer their prayer in that way? They could have very easily have given up and said, prayer doesn't work. They could have very easily thrown in a towel and said that God is not faithful. They could have very easily done all that, but they didn't. Thank God they didn't. They were just persistent despite everything else that was going on around them. Despite their circumstances, they kept on praying. God doesn't always work in the ways and in the timing that we think He will. And so for those of you who have young children right now, don't ever give up praying for them. God may take you through some things that are going to test your resolve in prayer. I can tell you from personal experience that there are going to be times when your children are going to break your heart because they all don't turn out the way that you think they should. But just like the persistent friend, don't ever stop being persistent with God through prayer. You should be praying for them just as much as when things are going well as when things are going bad. Luke 18.1 says that Jesus was teaching the disciples another parable so that at all times they might pray and not lose heart. This is an encouragement, is it not? No matter how bleak things are looking for you, no matter how bad things seem to be going on, no matter how impossible the situation appears to be, we must be passionate, diligent, and persistent in prayer. Because you never know what God's going to do. He will do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. And then lastly, we saw in verses 9-13 through the promise that God is faithful in answering our prayers. We are to ask, seek, and knock. And I always kind of link this parallel account with Matthew 7 and Luke 11 because in my mind, where do you go to get anything you need in the world, right? You go to the 7-Eleven, right? They're open 24 hours a day. They got just about everything you need. So Matthew 7 and Luke 11 reminds us that it is God who is our holy and loving Father that longs to give good gifts to His children, and He is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He never sleeps and He never slumbers. And He has every possible resource available to us if we would only ask, seek, and knock through prayer. And Jesus illustrated this point with a parable of a father who gives to his son, and it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If an earthly father gives good gifts to his son, how much more will our heavenly father give us perfect gifts if we persist in asking, seeking, and knocking? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said of these verses. He said, if we would prevail, we must persist. We must continue incessantly and constantly and know no pause to our prayer till we win the mercy to the fullest possible extent. Week by week, month by month, year by year, the conversion of that dear child must be the father's main plea. The bringing in of that unconverted husband is to lie upon the wife's heart night and day till she gets it. She is not even to take 10 or 20 years of unsuccessful prayer as a reason why she should cease. 
She is to set God no times and no seasons, but so long as there is life in her and life in the dear object of her solicitude, she is to continue to plead with the almighty God of Jacob. But brethren, how many times we ask of God and have not because we don't wait long enough at the door. We knock a time or two at the gate of mercy, and as no friendly messenger opens up that door, we go on our ways. We must urge and plead again and again until we obtain an answer. As a young kid, I remember running around the west side of Columbus with my other hoodlum friends, and we would sort of sneak up to a house at night and knock on the door, right? And then quickly run away and watch to see whoever would come to the door and turn on the light and look around. And we all thought it was hilarious. It was good fun back then, okay? But about 20 minutes later, we'd go back up, knock again, and run away. It it was sort of like um, maybe city type, uh, a city version of cow tipping out here, okay? You don't want to do this. I'm not advocating for this. It's a little too dangerous these days. But how many of us treat God in the same way? How many of us just sort of go up and we maybe knock once, maybe twice, and we run away because we don't get an answer? To pray once or maybe twice about something and to give up is no different than a boy knocking on the door and running away. Or to say it another way, to cease in consistent and fervent prayer is like being prescribed medicine and not finishing out your medication as your physician has prescribed. And so, why are we covering these verses again? Why are we going over this text again? Because prayer is absolutely vital to your and my Christian walk. All of our life's thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our circumstances, all of our situations are an opportunity for you and I to commune with our Heavenly Father. When we encounter trouble, we can turn to God through prayer. When we encounter the loss, we can pray that God would draw that person to Himself. When we are tempted, we can pray and turn to God for deliverance. When we experience the blessing of God, we can thank Him for it through prayer. When we sin, we can choke it off through prayer. When we come across difficulties, we can pray to God for the strength to persevere through it. Everything in your life is an opportunity for you to call upon, to bless, and to thank and seek the Lord through prayer. Many of us can talk about God, but how many of us here can talk to God? So this morning, I'm urging you to pray. I'm calling on you to make prayer a regular part of your day. I'm asking you to come to the throne of grace with boldness and expectancy and persistency on a daily basis. As we fast approach 2016, let this church be known as a people who pray. Let's pray. Father, we admit to you that This seems like a daunting and difficult task, but it is a necessary task. It is a joyful task. We just pray that you would give us the strength and the endurance to do it. Lord, we just pray that every person in this room would become a person of prayer, including myself. Help us to be diligent. 
Help us to look to you for every good and perfect gift. Help us to be persistent. Help us not to look around at the things that are going on in this world as an indicator that you are not working because you are. You are doing things that we can't see sometimes. Father, give us the strength to do this. Help us to go from here dependent upon you for every need and every gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.